The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for December 26, 2022. In 1973, to avoid a growing scandal over his finances, President Richard Nixon released his tax returns from 1969 to 1972. At this point, with every successive president, except for one Donald Trump, the voluntary release of a presidential candidate's tax returns has been the norm. But norms are just that, and they don't carry the weight of law behind them. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from March 2021. In the episode, Alan Rosenstein sat down with Jonathan Gold to discuss the importance and erosion of constitutional norms, how to best repair them, and the potential unintended consequences of committing unwritten norms to legislative language. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 23rd, 2021. What is our constitutional system? Most obviously, it's the written document, and it also includes the two and a half centuries of judicial decisions interpreting it. But these two things, text and case law, only scratch the surface. Equally important are constitutional norms, the unwritten rules that govern how actors in our political system behave. For decades now, commentators have observed the steady erosion of many of these norms. And in the four years of the Trump administration, the trickle of norm violations became a torrent. As a response, many in academia, the media, and politics have called for Congress to pass legislation that would codify what had previously been unwritten norms of behavior, from requiring that presidential candidates disclose their tax returns to limiting the president's pardon power. In a forthcoming article in the Georgetown Law Journal, Jonathan Gould, assistant professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, analyzes many of these proposals and points out the potential unintended consequences of trying to commit unwritten norms to legislative language. I spoke with Jonathan about the importance and erosion of constitutional norms, especially within the executive branch, and how best to repair them. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 23rd. Jonathan Gould on codifying constitutional norms. So before we talk about codifying constitutional norms, Can you explain what constitutional norms are and how they differ from the sort of constitutional law you learn by, for example, reading the Constitution or studying court cases or taking a constitutional law class? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. And firstly, thank you so much to you, Alan, and and to Lawfare for for having me here. So 
constitutional norms are regularly followed modes of behavior by public officials regarding issues of governance. And so, for example, it is a constitutional norm that the president gives an in-person State of the Union every year. There's no legal requirement they give an in-person State of the Union. For over a century, the State of the Union wasn't an in-person speech, but we now have a norm. It's something that is, that's expected. If a president chose not to do it, that would be unusual. Voters might be upset. Members of Congress might be upset. There's this sense in which there's an obligation. A few key features of constitutional norms. First, norms emerge from decentralized processes. So if you think about law, where does law come from? It might come from the Constitution itself, it might come from the court, it might come from the legislature, but law comes in kind of a top-down, centralized way. We know what the source of law is. Norms are much more diffuse. They reflect established practice, but they just come from behavior that kind of builds up over time in, in a way that's decentralized rather than centralized. Constitutional norms also can do things that constitutional law can't, and we'll talk about this later on, so I, I don't want to belabor, belabor the point now, but norms are non-legal principles. Almost by definition, if you're violating a norm, you're not violating a law. So it would be odd to say we have a norm against bribing public officials. I suppose we do in that most people most of the time don't bribe public officials, but what's really driving, we also have a law against bribing public officials. The, kind of the, most, important, the most important constraint on bribery of public officials is law, not norms, that we have statutes that allow for you to be prosecuted if you try to do that sort of thing. Whereas norms, by definition, the only, and this is, this is the last point I'll make in defining norms, the only method of enforcement for a norm violation is political. By definition, if you break a norm, you can't get hauled into court for it. Instead, if you break a norm, you might be retaliated against by another public official, you might get slammed in the press, you might lose re-election, or you might not, or you might get away with it. I don't want to imply that every norm violation is policed, but if the norm violation is policed at all, it's policed by the political process, not by the familiar legal process. So just in wrapping up on this, we have this kind of divide between law, which comes from a centralized place and where there is typically judicial enforcement, though not always, versus norms, which come from a decentralized place and where there is typically not judicial or any other sort of formal enforcement. So one of the nice features of your of your paper is that you spent a lot of time at the beginning giving just a ton of examples of norms and, and you show not just theoretically, but also practically how pervasive and ubiquitous norms are in structuring our, our political system. And I think listeners are going to be most familiar with presidential norms. You mentioned, for example, just now the norm about giving a State of the Union uh, in person orally before a joint session of Congress. You know, without going through an exhaustive list, and, and probably there is no such thing as an exhaustive list, which is something we can probably talk about later as well. But what are some other examples of really high profile presidential norms? That perhaps you know the American public isn't as familiar with as it should, and 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 here you know I'm particularly curious about ones that may have been either violated or weakened uh, during the Trump administration, uh, because those are obviously the ones that I think are, are most in the in the public discussion today. Yeah, so there's one important set of norms involving independence. So why is it that we think of the Justice Department's function in investigating and prosecuting crimes as something that's done outside of presidential control. 
why is it that we think of the Federal Reserve as independent from the White House and not taking direct orders from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue? There are some, for those and other agencies, there are, there are some mechanisms of kind of legal mechanisms providing for independence, but largely it's a matter of norms, that this just isn't something that is done. The president doesn't call up the attorney general and say, I want you to prosecute A and not B. The president doesn't pressure the Fed chair into raising interest rates or not. That there's this kind of, there are norms of independence and there's, I'm drawing on the work of Daphne Renan and Adrian Vermeule. Others have documented these norms of independence as a really important class of norms. There are also interesting norms around filling out the bureaucracy. So I think there's a norm that presidents in good faith try to make appointments to executive branch positions. Um, obviously, Democratic presidents will make more liberal appointments and Republican presidents will make more conservative appointments. But the idea that a president would just not try to fill a whole suite of executive branch positions prior to the Trump administration would have been unusual. President Trump, of course, did name a full cabinet. I mean, he didn't take this as far as he could have, but there are a lot of sub-cabinet executive branch positions he didn't make a lot of effort to fill. And in a very candid interview with Fox News early in, early in his term, he said, I don't think some of these jobs should exist. I think the government's too big. I'm just not going to fill them. And that's, I think, an example of there's no law requiring the president to fill vacant executive branch positions. Kind of some creative interpretation you could maybe get to a legal requirement as part of kind of a take care, a take care requirement. But there's no kind of obvious facial requirement that that be done. But there was a norm that presidents try to staff up, and that's a norm that was at least threatened, if not, if not outright violated. The other thing I would say is that there are some norms around, and really important norms, around how the president treats the press. So obviously there's no law requiring that the president engage respectfully with journalists. There's no law requiring press conferences. There's no law requiring certain releases of public information. There's no law requiring the White House even have a press secretary or a press office. And that said, there were norms that built up over the past several decades in both Democratic and Republican presidencies of how the White House would deal with the press. And some of those norms were violated in the Trump years as well. So I could go on and on, and many have documented the, the norm violations during the Trump administration. But those are, those are a couple of examples. And and I'll say perhaps this is where we're going next. There are similar stories to be told in Congress and the courts of things that are not required by law, but are rather just kind of products of norms. Yeah. And can, can you give a couple of examples of, of that? I mean, I, I think when we talk about codifying constitutional norms and especially what's been going on over the last several years, we're going to naturally focus on the president. But it's important. And I think you, you explained this really nicely. Norms are not just pervasive in the executive branch. They're pervasive in Congress and they're pervasive in the courts, which is something I think we don't think about. So, um, you know, we're going to probably spend most of the conversation talking about the presidency, but just so the audience gets a full picture. What are some of the kind of big norms that, you know, you, you think are important within Congress and and within uh, the courts? Great. So let, let me take those in order. So if you think about what a member of Congress does day to day, virtually none of it is required by law. Virtually all of it is just a function of norms. So members of Congress take part in committee hearings, they vote in committee, they take part in floor votes, they meet with interest groups and other stakeholders, they provide constituent services. So they, every member of Congress that I know of has an office where if you're a constituent struggling to navigate the bureaucracy, you can call them up and they, they'll provide some measure of assistance. 
None of that is required by law. A member of Congress could do the job very differently than kind of the, the pattern that we've seen almost every member taking over many, many decades. And the idea that when there's a floor vote, at least an important floor vote, members show up, that's a norm, not a law, not a legal requirement. So that's one set of examples. Um, and then there are more kind of less day-to-day, -day, more high-stakes examples. So I would argue there was a norm for a long time that the debt ceiling not be used to extract substantive policy concessions, that that was a norm, that we routinely raise the debt ceiling without seeing brinksmanship over, over many years. That's a norm that's been, been substantially weakened if it still exists at all. So in Congress, we have both norms around day-to-day -day behavior, what it means to be a good member, and norms around kind of more extraordinary circumstances or, or more, more high-stakes policymaking settings. Let me say a word or two about courts. Two types of norms jump to mind, one of which is, I mean, for, for lawyers, and particularly constitutional lawyers, the, the modalities of constitutional interpretation are going to be familiar, that in interpreting the Constitution, you look to text and structure and history and precedent. Needless to say, none of that is written down anymore. That the very way in which we go about doing constitutional law is a product of norms, that some types of arguments are viewed as acceptable, whereas other types of arguments are viewed as unacceptable. That even in the most politically charged of cases, think Bush v. Gore, you never see a line in the opinion, I am voting this way because it will help my preferred political party. There's a norm against saying that sort of thing. There are norms around what types of discourse are and are not permissible. So that's one class of norms in the courts. Another class of norms in the courts, now I'll use the Supreme Court as an example here, though there are similar examples in, in other courts as well, are norms, basically procedural norms. So think about the rule of four, which is the procedure for certiorari for deciding what cases the Supreme Court takes. That's a norm, not a rule. There's no legal requirement that four votes equals cert. That's just a norm that's developed over time. And there are a number of other norms just showing, just as there are norms dictating how Congress goes about its business, how courts go about its business. So the idea, and this is in, in books, in kind of journalistic accounts of the court, you see a lot of examples of these norms. So the idea that at conference, the justices speak in order of seniority, that's a norm. The idea that the chief justice or the assigning justice for opinions tries to divvy up the work roughly evenly. You'll never get a term where Justice A writes 20 opinions and Justice B writes zero. That's a norm as well. So we have kind of norms within just as norms structure the executive branch and Congress. You have norms structuring how the Supreme Court and other courts work as well. We also have norms that exist between branches, and I, I, in the interest of time, I'm happy to talk more if you'd like. We have norms dictating how the president interacts with Congress in particular. That's a relationship not only constructed by, by law, by familiar separation of powers law, but also constructed by norms. So one question it occurs to me is, is how do we know that a particular pattern of behavior is a norm. So you, you just listed off, I don't know, half a dozen norms in the last five minutes, and they all sound like norms to me. I would agree with them that they are in fact norms, but you and I share a, a lot of background, both in terms of profession and our outlook perhaps on things. And so presumably it's natural that the sorts of things you think are norms are the sorts of things that I think are norms. But, but how do we know that something is a norm? I mean, it, presumably it can't, for example, it can't simply be, I would imagine that 
something is a norm if when you violate it, you get politically punished. So for example, whoever is in the, you know, whichever party is in the White House, the other party is supposed to apparently criticize them every time there's a picture of them golfing, right? So when Trump golfs, all the Democrats hate golfing and that's terrible. When Obama golfs, all the Republicans think golfing is terrible. And, you know, that seems a pretty routine pattern. And yet I think to say that there is a norm against golfing might be descriptively true in the sense that if you golf a lot, you will be punished. But I think there's a good reason to think that 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 would be a stupid norm or we should resist the idea that that is a norm because let's say it's good for presidents to golf because presidents need to blow off steam. And in fact, it's really short-sighted of us to get grumpy whenever we see our president golfing. So how do we know that something is a norm? And, And obviously this question is not simply, it's not limited to your paper or or this area, right? I mean, these this is, comes up in international law, comes up in the philosophy of law, but sort of in the context of constitutional intra or interbranch norms, how do we know if something is a norm or not? Yeah, this is one of the deepest questions. And it's a question that I try to bracket for purposes of the paper, that the move I make in the paper is you may define norms more broadly or more narrowly, whatever your definition, I'd hope that my analysis of codification would apply. But taking a step back from from the paper and just, just diving into your question a little bit, it's one of the main differences between norms and more po- positive sources of law. That if you ask me, what does the statute say, I have a place in which to look it up. And it is very clear what is and isn't in the statute. There's interpretation that needs to be done, but we at least know where to look. Whereas with norms, because they're diffuse, because they develop organically rather than being handed down from on high, it's much harder to determine what a norm is. Let me say a few things. Firstly, a norm is regularly followed. A norm doesn't need to always be followed, but a norm is regularly followed. So we might say that there is a norm in American restaurants of forks on the left and knives and spoons on the right. That doesn't mean we couldn't find a restaurant that does it differently. We could just say that's the norm. That's the way it is typically done. So a norm that was always violated or never followed, I would contend would cease to be a norm. That said, one violation isn't enough to defeat the norm, that something can still be a norm if it's violated once or a small number of times. But there are a couple of axes of disagreement in the literature here that that I just want to highlight. So one possible axis of disagreement is whether norms must necessarily reflect a moralized view of conduct as being right and wrong. So on one view, it's only a norm if it's followed out of a sense of obligation, as opposed to just out of kind of habit or out of anticipating punishment for violation. So this is a real issue on court packing here. So think about the many people say there's a norm against court packing. You might say that norm, if it exists, exists because presidents feel deep down it would be wrong to try to pack the court for reasons of constitutional principle. Or you might say every president would love to pack the court. They just feel like they would get politically punished if they tried. So the question is, does if it's really just about incentives and punishment, does that defeat the finding of a norm? Then is it just kind of incentives all the way down? It must there be kind of this moralized sense of of obligation in order for a norm to exist. And there are people on both sides of that question. Another axis of disagreement concerns the importance of external sanction. And this kind of relates to the first year. So imagine a norm is violated. I mean, a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it. It's something we think a norm is violated. And it turns out the violator gets away with it. Is that 
saying that there was no norm to begin with, if in fact they get away with it? Maybe. I mean, that's again, that's a question where, where there are people on both sides. And a final issue is how many norm violations defeat the existence of a norm? So I would contend that one or two is not enough, but at some point, if a norm is violated enough, there is a new norm. So you can imagine here, one of, one of my favorite examples is there was at one point a norm against presidents leaving the country during their terms in office. The idea being that if you leave the country, you're out of touch, your kind of communications technologies aren't there. If you leave the country, you can't discharge your duties as president. Needless to say, that's not a norm that has existed for many decades now, that for many, many decades, we've had presidents leave the country. We don't condemn them for doing it. We, in fact, think it's a good thing that that's part of what it means to be an effective foreign policy president is to leave the country and do state visits and go to international meetings with other heads of state. So that's a norm that it's very clear that the norm did exist for a time. It's very clear that the norm doesn't exist anymore. It gets a little bit dicey figuring out exactly when did that norm die and how and when did that norm collapse. So kind of at the margins, there are hard definitional issues, but I do think there are kind of some core cases where, where we can comfortably say that a norm does exist. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So we've talked a lot about norms, which I think is really important background to, to the actual topic of your paper, which is codifying them. And so what does it mean to codify a norm? And, and also in, in explaining this, you focus on sort of two historical examples of, of maybe the, the highest profile or two of the highest profile norm codifications in American history, one being the 22nd Amendment, which set two terms as the limit on on presidential terms after FDR, and the other being this kind of collection of, you might call them good government reforms and statutes passed by Congress after Watergate in the wake of Richard Nixon's resignation. So, so you know, in addition to sort of explaining what codification means, you know, what, what is it about these two examples that you think is sort of particularly emblematic and, and useful for us in, in thinking about this topic? Yeah. So this, this gets to the heart of the paper of what is it to codify a norm? And for me, quite simply, to codify a norm means to enact its content into law. I don't say what type of law enacting its content into law might mean a constitutional amendment. It might mean a new statute. It might mean a new administrative regulation or camera rule within Congress. But to codify a norm means to take it from the realm of diffuse, decentralized practice into the realm of kind of 
text-based written articulated law. So let's take the 22nd Amendment as an example. From the beginning of the Republic until President Roosevelt, there was a norm, or at least there was argued to be a norm, that presidents don't serve more than two terms. It's interesting, the norm, if you dig into it, was actually a lot less clear than that. There were questions about what about partial terms when presidents die in office? Do those count? What about non-consecutive terms? You had a few presidents who ran for third terms unsuccessfully. You had very few presidents who actually had the opportunity to run for third terms because a lot of people, especially in the 19th century, only served one term and then lost. Um, there were also three or four presidents who, who died in office. So, so there's a question about the strength of the norm in the first instance, but let's assume for the sake of argument, the norm existed. You had this norm, it existed for about 150 years. It was broken quite publicly. We saw there was perhaps some political penalty to breaking it, but not enough to deny President Roosevelt re-election that he won by wide margins in both 1940 and 1944. So then the question becomes, what's next? And it's possible that the norm would have kind of healed itself, that in spite of Roosevelt, other presidents would have voluntarily foregone a third term. It's possible the norm just would have been dead and third terms would have become the new normal, as it were. Or it's possible, and this is the route that the route that was taken, that the norm would be enacted into law. So you have debates in Congress and then ultimately ratification of the 22nd Amendment, which codifies the norm that presidents shall not serve more than two terms. It deals with this edge case of partial terms, um, saying that if you serve less than half of your predecessor's term, it doesn't count against your two-term limit. If you serve more than half, it does. And now we have a law in the books, and the law has been universally followed. I mean, there hasn't been any judicial enforcement of the two-term limit, but no president has seriously contemplated running for a third term. Interestingly, a couple of presidents, both Clinton and Obama, publicly said that they could have won had they been eligible to run, which is, I suppose, cheap talk given that they weren't eligible. But, but there's, been, there's been perfect compliance with the two-term norm. So that's an example of codifying a norm. I think it's important because the two-term norm is the only norm codified through constitutional amendment, that the more typical path for trying to codify a norm, and this is what we've seen in the wake of Trump, is trying to codify it through passing new statutes. And we have all these new proposed statutes that I imagine we'll talk about in a few minutes. So that's why I highlighted the 22nd Amendment. It's just a really clean example, and it's the only one that was codified through, through constitutional amendment. In the post-Nixon years, the story is a little bit messier. Um, there were certainly violations of the law during President Nixon's time in office. I certainly don't want to be taken to be saying that there were no violations of the law, because there were, but there were also violations of norms. And in response to some of those violations, there was an effort to codify norms. You had this whole, as you mentioned, this whole suite of good governance statutes passed in the 1970s, um, some of which I think are best understood as reforms, as trying to change the status quo but others of which I think are best understood as codifications, as trying to restore the status quo ante that had existed before President Nixon. So those are the two sets of examples that I talk through in the paper. And I do it by way of setting the stage for President Trump, who was a norm violator par excellence, and who in response to the Trump administration, both during the administration and a little bit now, now in post-Trump world, 
we've seen proposals by elected officials and advocacy groups and scholars and others to codify norms, to take things that President Trump did that weren't illegal when he did them. So putting aside the many things he did that were illegal, but the things he did that weren't illegal and try to convert what had previously been a norm into a legal requirement. Which of these proposed reforms or codifications or however we want to call them, which of them do you find most interesting? Whether it's because they have some bipartisan support and therefore it might be a little easier to get them through Congress or because they're really big swings, which are the ones that sort of you're, you're following that, that you think are sort of particularly particularly important, whether they, they pass or not? There are a number of interesting provisions. Let me give, I think, a kind of one of the cleanest examples and then a, a couple more complex examples. So maybe the cleanest examples around presidential tax returns. So we had a norm that presidential candidates and sitting presidents released their tax returns. President Trump famously did not do so. So then we've seen proposed legislation to require presidential candidates and sitting presidents to make their tax returns public. And one of the bills that was introduced, it was 10 years of personal tax returns when you're running for president. So that's kind of much like the 22nd Amendment, a very clean example of there was a norm, it was broken, there was a proposed legal change to make it compulsory to abide by what was once the norm, what would then become the law. So that's a clean example. There are a number of other norms where codification efforts have not tried to directly codify the norm, but have tried to, in a sort of roundabout way, enact the norm's content into law, or at least kind of buttress the norm, strengthen the norm, even if in an indirect way. So let's think here about the presidential pardon power and presidents meddling in federal investigations. In both cases, there would be hard constitutional questions if Congress were to pass a statute saying the president shall not meddle in federal investigations, the president shall not pardon X, Y, and Z, that those statutes would come under serious constitutional doubt, at least in the current court. So then the question is, how do you codify the norm or how do you strengthen the norm if directly enacting its content into law the way the, the 22nd Amendment or the tax returns proposal would, might be unconstitutional? How do you deal with that? And the answer, and we haven't seen this enacted yet, but we've seen this proposed, and I, I would not be surprised if we saw it enacted in the months ahead, has been disclosure requirements. So with respect to the presidential interference with federal investigations, House Democrats have introduced legislation requiring that certain White House communications with DOJ be reported to DOJ's inspector general, and in some circumstances be reported to Congress itself. Similarly, House Democrats in during the end of the Trump administration introduced legislation that would require special disclosure to Congress for pardons arising from matters where the president or one of the president's relatives is a target subject or witness. So it would see it would be an unconstitutional burden on the pardon power to say the president can't pardon his kids. But Congress seems to be able to say, I think the best reading the Constitution allows for Congress to say, if you are going to pardon your kids, here are the disclosure requirements, here are the other things you have to do, we're going to make it a little more painful for you. So those are two examples of kind of the intersection of norms and constitutional law and constitutional law shaping how the norms can and can't be codified. Yeah, so let me let me, let me use that to, to then transition in, into what, what I think of I don't know if it's the heart of the paper, but one of the, I think, particularly valuable pieces of the paper, which is sort of you going through and identifying 
kind of the, the trade-offs and potential disadvantages of norm codification. And, and I, I think you do, you do a really nice job of, of sort of staying neutral overall and whether or not codification in general is a good idea. I think, you know, your paper is perhaps most profitably read as a kind of a roadmap or a set of, of carefully thought through trade-offs for policymakers or legislators to, to think through. But one of the things, useful things you do is you do throw a little bit of cold water on some of the more, shall we say, uh, over-optimistic or overheated uh, reform proposals. And, and a lot of them do have to do with the constitutionality of a lot of these reform proposals, um, especially those that seek to interfere with either the president's interactions with with uh, his subordinates or with the president's exercise of kind of his own prerogative powers, as it were, things like the pardon power. And, and I am curious, I mean, how much space do you think that the Constitution gives, and in particular, the Constitution as interpreted by this Supreme Court, right, which is not only a conservative court, but with the Chief Justice sort of in the minority now, in a way, a, a aggressively, perhaps a more aggressively conservative court than it was before it, it kind of went 6-3. No, one example you gave right just now is, well, you can sort of get around it by doing disclosure requirements. But of course, if the point of the disclosure requirement is to put pressure on the underlying conduct, then at some point, the Supreme Court can say, we see what you're doing, Congress. You're trying to limit this power through a different means, and we're not going to allow you to do that, right? We're not going to be so formalistic. So, so I mean, I guess the question is, how much freedom do you think there is to codify the very norms that require the most codification because they're under, under greatest threat? Yeah, it's a great question. And the, the short answer is not as much room as there used to be. I think if you have, and, and I'll just say stepping back that that Article 2 in presidential power isn't the only type of constitutional constraint that codifying norms can run into. And I give a few examples in the paper of norms where if you tried to codify them, there might be First Amendment problems. So this is a constitutional law issue generally, not just with respect to presidential power. But I agree that presidential power is, is the most important. And this is a court that seems inclined to take a very muscular view of presidential power. There are several members of the court that have endorsed unitary executive theories. I think if you look at the, the Mazars decision, while not a kind of outright win for the president, it was certainly not an outright win for Congress either. And it took, took seriously presidential interests that, that many think shouldn't have been taken as seriously as, as they were. This is a big issue. I think, I mean, if I were, if I were a lawyer on Capitol Hill, I would be, I would be very cautious around how to go about codifying norms in light of the fact that there will be inevitable constitutional challenges and the fact that current law may not be a guide to how future courts will decide these challenges. So I actually think that the existing proposals, both coming out of Democrats on the Hill and coming out of nonprofits and advocacy groups like the Brennan Center has a couple of long reports along these lines. I think they're exceptionally well done. I think they do a really good job kind of ensuring that whatever proposals they make are compliant with the current understanding of the Constitution and would be upheld as constitutional under current law. That said, under current law is something that I don't think we can be comfortable with into the indefinite future. And if the court begins reading presidential power more expansively than it has in the past, we might have things that look squarely constitutional now, that I feel very good now are consistent with current law, that would infringe upon a more robust theory of presidential power that the court might adopt in the future. And this is where I think disclosure requirements are a perfect example, that it seems pretty clear, at least to me from my readings and my analysis, that requiring certain types of communications to be disclosed are consistent with current law. 
That said, you could easily imagine, and your question did this, did this nicely, you could easily imagine a court that said, this is an indirect burden on a core presidential power, therefore we're gonna strike down the statute. So I don't know, I don't know what to do with that. That's a really hard, it's a really hard challenge for those like me who are worried about norm erosion and who, who would want to codify norms. Um, and let me just take a step back and say, say one more piece on this, which is the following. In some other constitutional systems, we think of constitutional norms and constitutional law as complementary. So in places that have either no written constitution or only kind of a minimally written constitution, think here about the UK or Israel, there are a set of norms that complement kind of the constitution. We think of the norms as part of constitutional law. Whereas here, in some ways, constitutional law and constitutional norms are not complements, but are supplements. That constitutional norms do things that statutes can't do. That there are a lot of things that we might wish we could pass a statute on, but it needs to remain an uncodified norm precisely because constitutional law constrains Congress. That the bigger the space that the Constitution takes up, as it were, the more legislation the Constitution takes off the table, the more important it is that we have robust uncodified norms that are taken seriously. So that's kind of the bigger picture on this relationship between law and norms. So I, I think that's a, that's a nice segue into into kind of my last question for you, which is on this issue of the need for uncodified constitutional norms, and particularly uncodified ones. And, and one thing you point out is there's a danger, and I think this is related to what you were just saying, that that codifying norms can crowd out what you call political morality or you know, what, what's been called political morality. And I think that's a really important point, and it's one that I think is often overlooked in our culture, both legal, but also non-legal, you know, all of our culture is obsessed with law, right? We saw this, you know, during the impeachment, during both impeachments, during the Mueller investigation, this question of was the conduct narrowly illegal rather than kind of non-virtuous or, or norm-breaking in some, in some broader sense. So can you just say more about what you mean by political morality, you know, what its role is here and, and what the danger to over-aggressive codification can, can be to that? Yeah, sure. And I this this isn't the only set of trade-offs. In the paper, I, I go I go through several trade-offs involved in codification, where where there are advantages to codification, but each advantage has a sort of corresponding disadvantage. So let's take the issue of compliance, and I'll, I'll get I'll get to the crowding out point in just a moment. So on the issue of compliance, one obvious advantage to codifying a norm is you're likely to get higher compliance. That if I'm an elected official, maybe I can violate a norm with impunity but I'm going to think twice before I violate the law because I don't want to get sued, because I don't want to get prosecuted, or even if those things aren't going to happen because I don't want an attack ad calling me a lawbreaker. That's not something candidates tend, tend to want. So that's the promise of codification, or one of the big promises of codification is greater compliance. The question is, what happens? Is there any sort of downside to codification from the standpoint of compliance? And I contend that there is. In fact, I contend there are a couple. So one downside is that when you codify a norm, you kind of might end up weakening the norm if it later gets narrowed or struck down. So imagine here, taking one of the examples we were running with earlier, imagine Congress passed a statute imposing a bunch of restrictions on the use of the pardon power. And imagine that the courts, out of constitutional concerns, either struck that statute down or narrowly construed it it's possible then the norm would actually be weaker than if it had never been codified in the first instance. 
because if it had never been codified in the first instance, it would still be out there as a norm. Whereas if it's codified and then narrowed or codified and then struck down, a president could plausibly say, hey, look, it's unconstitutional to constrain me in this way. Therefore, I'm going to claim it more power than I would have previously, more power than I, than I might have been able to get away with before the norm was codified. So that's one point. A second point, and this is your political morality point, is that you could imagine codifying a norm and that crowding out political morality that lies just beyond the scope of the codification. So let's say Congress passed a law saying that the president can't buy and sell securities during their term in office. A president could very cleverly have a family member, a close associate, buy and sell securities on their behalf. And then they could argue, I should be beyond reproach. I complied with the law. All that the law required was that I not do this. The law has kind of occupied the field. The law is all that really constrains me here. And so long as I comply with the law, actually anything just beyond the letter of the law is permissible. So that's one kind of crowding out concern. Another crowding out concern has to do with the status of other norms. And I don't think we're approaching this point yet, but you can imagine it in the future. Now, most norms are uncodified. You could imagine if Congress codified 10 different norms relating to presidential power, what does that say about the other 10 or 20 or 30 that don't get codified? Are those somehow less important by dint of not being codified? I think given our kind of legalistic culture, which you referenced in your question, you could imagine someone saying, well, now the most important norms are the codified ones. We can ignore everything else. The kind of uncodified norms are ones that we don't have to worry about. And then the final point, which is which is related to this, is in um in the smartest guys in the room, the the great book about the Enron scandal. There's a there's a great narrative about the ways in which some Enron employees viewed the general accepted accounting principles as basically providing a roadmap to fraud. That so long as we zig and zag our way around the principles, anything that's not barred by those principles is fair game. And I worry about something similar happening in government. That the more we codify norms the more we're kind of inviting conduct just beyond the edge of that which is codified. So that's a concern. I just want to be very, very clear. In some cases, codification makes sense. And in some cases, codification will be desirable. That I am not anti-codification in all circumstances. And in fact, in the final part of the paper, I give some principles for if you are going to codify, here are the ways to do it. Here's how to think about doing it in the most effective way. So I'm certainly not anti-codification. I just think we need to think very carefully and surgically about the costs and benefits of doing so in different circumstances. Jonathan, thank you so much. It's a really fantastic paper. I, I highly recommend it. It has a ton of really fascinating ideas, a lot of good analysis. It's super clear. It's, it's a really wonderful resource for a set of discussions that I'm sure we're going to be having for a very, very long time. So thank you so much for, for coming on the show and uh, talking to us about it. Thank you so much. It's really, it's, it's been a pleasure and I really appreciate the conversation. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate the podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.